0: You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com. Luke chapter 24 will be in verses 44 through 49. I want to pray before we get there. So let me pray. Father, thank you for your word. Lord, we pray that you would um, just give us the gift of your spirit this morning, that you would illuminate or or bring to light what you would say to us as we open the scriptures together. But I pray that you would um, just reveal places of our hearts, reveal places of our lives where we need to hear from you, where we need to be challenged and even rebuked by you, but even encouraged by you this morning. Lord, Lord, I pray that that you would just speak to every one of us, reminded that your word reminds us that we cannot live on bread alone, but we can live on every mouth, every word that comes from the mouth of God. And so Lord, as we open the scriptures today, we recognize this is your word, this is you desiring to speak with us. So just ask that you would help us to hear from you. Help me to preach your words this morning, and not my own. We bless you in Jesus' name. Everybody said, "Amen." Amen. Say so, hey, what I want you to do before we dive into our passage this morning is I want you to, I want you to imagine that you're sitting down with someone that you love dearly. Could be that that's where you're at right now already, sitting across the table from somebody you love dearly. I want you to think about this in terms of your your uh, just your day to day life throughout the week sitting down with someone you love dearly maybe it's a friend or a co-worker or a relative maybe it's maybe it's a child or, or a teenager that you know um, somebody that is very close to you someone that you love dearly right now at the same time I want you to imagine that this is the last conversation that you would ever have with them and you knew that ahead of time going into that conversation what would you say to them What would you want to say to somebody if that was your last conversation? I want you to think about this in your mind. What that conversation would look like for you. How would that change your life even thinking about coming into that conversation prior to that conversation? How would it change the way that you walk out your life? If you knew that that would be the last conversation that you could have with them. What what would you regret saying? If after that conversation you walked away and they walked away and they died, right? What would you regret never being able to say to them? But think about it this way too. What want you think about what kind of people we would be and what kind of people we would influence others to be if our conversations were fueled by this kind of urgency. If that was the urgency that you and I sensed and felt deep down inside, that this could possibly be the last conversation that I had with somebody, how would that transform and change relationships? If you really begin to see your interactions with other people as possibly the last opportunity that you could have to say something important to them, then, then, then what would you begin to say differently? What kind of urgency would you live your life with? What kind of intentionality would you begin to live your life with? What kind of selflessness would you begin to live your life with if we begin to live with that kind of urgency? Now think about what kind of impact that kind of urgency in our lives could have um, for us and our church family, maybe for you and your own family, in your relationships with your friends, coworkers at work, what kind of impact could that have on the city around us? What kind of impact could that have if we lived with that kind of urgency in our hearts? Like my my aim today, if, if you think of a sermon being like an arrow that you pull back on a bow and try to shoot, right? And you want to try to hit a target in the bullseye. My aim today, as we study what, What appears to be Jesus' final sermon, at least in the Gospel of Luke, his final words to his disciples. For us, for many of us, after three years of studying through this Gospel, we come to the last thing that Jesus says to his disciples. And my aim is to help us to wrestle with the things that Jesus found to be the most important things to say, the most urgent things to speak to his disciples. And my hope is that as we examine this passage that we will be uh, influenced by the urgency in what Jesus says to them. Look at Luke 24. Sorry, in verse 44. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. from on high. So what's happening in this passage is as we have just come through all of Jesus' earthly ministry, right? Massive theme throughout the Gospel of Luke is that you and I would know Jesus. That you and I would know the truth and the truth would set us free. That we could be assured of who Jesus is and what Jesus says. And what Jesus promises to continue doing, that we would have assurance in that, that we could rest and stand in the very words of Scripture and the the character of who Christ is. And so as we've come through Christ's ministry, we've seen Him as the Son of Man coming to seek and to save that which was lost, those who are far from His Father. This was Jesus' mission on earth as He came, right? Right? And then we see his work at the cross as he dies horrifically. One of the darkest days in all of history, yet at the same time one of the most glorious days in all of history because in that horrifying dark day we see Christ murdered for us on our behalf. And then three days of mourning and crying, depression, and then the tomb is empty. And then the confusion that sets in for the disciples, wondering what happened to Jesus' body. And a full day of Jesus making crazy appearances to people, right? Walking through walls, sitting down at a table after walking a few miles with some disciples, and they didn't even know who he was, and sits down at the table, breaks bread. They recognize him. Poof, he disappears. And then he shows up again walks through a wall, walks right through a locked door, basically into a room full of disciples who are talking about all these appearances of Jesus. This is their conversation. and It's the last conversation he has with them. And in that conversation, he finds very important things to say to them. In fact, you could say that what Jesus did here is he took this last opportunity to preach. Took this last opportunity to preach a message to his disciples. This final conversation with his disciples in the flesh, Jesus uses the opportunity to urgently preach a biblical, Christ-centered, sin-confronting, repentance-calling, disciple-making message to his disciples. These are the things that Jesus finds very important, right? Therefore, we should find those things to be important as well. So look at number one. Verse 44, Jesus preached a biblical message. Jesus uses this this last conversation with his disciples to to remind them that, that all of the words that he has spoken to them over the last three years, everything that Jesus said up until this point has been based on the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. I mean, the law and the prophets and the Psalms were the content of the only Bible that these disciples had available to them at that time. Jesus was faithful. Jesus was faithful to not only preach the content of the Bible to them all throughout his ministry over those three years, but to also preach the content of the Bible to them in this final message, his final conversation with them. This final sermon for Jesus in in many ways is basically a summary of everything that Jesus has preached in his public ministry over the last three years. And every last word is based On the Bible. Everything Jesus says is saturated with the content of the Bible. Drenched in the words of the Bible. Dripping with references to the the law and the prophets and the Psalms. This is Jesus' speech. This is how Jesus talks to those people that he calls his friends. His conversations over a meal. Would have been intentionally sprinkled with biblical references, hard seasons of his life, were saturated with the words of Scripture. Even as he hung on the cross, the most painful season of his life, what came out of his mouth? The Bible. What what comes out of your mouth? in the hardest seasons of your life. Because the words of our mouths are proof of what's in our heart. Because our hearts are the wellspring of life, right? And the words that come out of our mouths prove what's happening deep down inside. And for Jesus, saturated with the content of the Bible. Jesus knew that a person cannot live on physical bread alone that a person can only survive this life with, with their eternal life intact by feeding on every word that comes from the mouth of God. You might be saying, dang, Joe, could you just like tell a joke? Jesus wasn't joking in this passage. But this, this is serious, I think his last words to his disciples. It's like, hey, I'm out here soon. Most important thing I can say to you is this here. And this is a summary. So Jesus preaches first a biblical message and then second, he preaches a Christ-centered message, verses 45 through 46. And listen, preaching a sermon that doesn't preach Christ at the center isn't a biblical message at all. And therefore, if Christ is not at the center of that message, and if the message isn't biblical, then that message that you or I preach or listen to is not life-giving. It doesn't open the mind or the heart to the power of Christ at the cross and the empty tomb. Christ must be at the center of all our preaching and our teaching so that our minds can be transformed or Opened by the gospel. If at any point you and I were to sit down with one another and think that somehow, in the roughest of seasons, or think that somehow, that in our conversation, that Christ should not be the center for some reason because maybe that's relegated to just Sunday mornings or maybe that's relegated to just gospel community gatherings or maybe Bible studies. Maybe that's the place that Christ should be the center of our conversation. And I would just, I would just ask, uh, th- then is your conversation really life-giving? And I think that Jesus knew that there would be many opportunities for his disciples. Think about this. He knew that there would be many opportunities for his disciples to be tempted to believe a different gospel. He knew that Satan would tempt Peter with the false gospel of comfort and self-preservation when Peter denied Christ three times. That's why he warned him. Jesus also knew that Satan would sell Judas on the gospel of health, wealth, and prosperity. Right? He knew that. That's why he warned him as well. And Jesus knows that you and I will be tempted to believe false gospels as well. He knows that we will be tempted to betray our Lord. He knows that we will be tempted to trade in our hope in Christ for The hope of earthly pleasure. And every time you or I fall into sin, what we are in effect doing is betraying our Lord, selling him out for a different gospel, selling out Christ for something else that we hoped in on this earth, selling Christ out for earthly pleasure, momentary gain. Jesus knows that we will be tempted. And often fall in those ways. So what does he do? Preaches a biblical, Christ-centered message so that we can remember to hold fast to the hope of the gospel. And the only reason that you and I fall into patterns of sin it's because we cease to hold fast to the truth and the hope and the joy of the gospel. And we find truth in something false. False hope. Which leads to death, right? We find it in some false gospel. When you think of the way that Satan tempted Jesus, even. Satan tempted God himself with What? The very words of Scripture took the truth and twisted it just a little bit. Jesus, being who he is, perfect, was able to withstand that and cling fast to the hope of the gospel. This is what I think Jesus wants for his disciples the most. He knows what's coming because he's God. So he preaches a biblical Christ-centered message. So his disciples can remember to hold fast to the hope of the gospel. You read the book of Acts, which is the second half of Luke, because it's written by the same author, Luke 1 and Luke 2. Goes right into what the ministry of the disciples looks like in the early church under the power of the Holy Spirit. Like That's what the church looks like, right? That's a description of the church all throughout the book of Acts. And you see people struggling in the midst of suffering. And yet at the same time, you see an emboldened church. A church of people who are filled with the Spirit, who are taking the gospel that they are clinging to with every ounce of their energy, and they're taking that message to the ends of the earth. And what happens, man? Churches sprout up. Lives get changed. Entire cities get changed because individuals can Clean to a biblical, Christ centered gospel that radically transforms their lives, their marriages, their families, their workplaces. This is what you see in the book of Acts. You see that still happening today throughout the world. And number three, Jesus also preached a sin confronting call to repentance kind of a message. Like when the Bible is preached with with the hope of Christ at the center of the message, then what happens is people are called to repent from sin and trust in the forgiveness that is available to them. Called to trust in the forgiveness that is available not only to them, but to every tribe, every tongue, every nation. But Jesus wasn't afraid to confront sin. Why? Think about that. He wasn't afraid to confront sin because he knew that sin is the infection that leads to death. I think that Jesus was happy and even eager to preach repentance and confront sin because he knows that repentance is what leads to eternal life. Like this sin confronting call to repentance, message of the gospel that we find Jesus preaching, man, it's not it's not just for down and out addicts or single moms struggling or married couples or or lonely single people or wealthy business people or rebellious teenagers or religious churchgoers. Like this message that that Jesus preaches, this message of confronting sin and calling each of us to repentance is, is for every person from every walk of life to not only hear, but to believe and then to turn around and proclaim with every word and action of their lives. When I encounter people who do not share the gospel with every word and action of their lives, then it's an indicator to me of how deep the gospel is actually rooted in their hearts to begin with. But Jesus was committed, I think, as we look at this. He was committed to helping people confront their sin and respond to the call to repent. That's why he preached this message. It's why he preached messages that confronted sin and called people to repent, to turn around, and to walk the other direction. That's why he preached this message to his disciples in the final moments of his ministry here on earth. He could find nothing more important to say to them. And number four, we see Jesus preached a disciple-making message as well. Verses 48 through 49. Like when the Bible is preached... With Christ at the center of the message, sin gets confronted, and repentance is called for. And disciples who've been changed by the power of the gospel begin to preach in the power of the Holy Spirit. Think about that for a minute. This is uh, the process of making disciples. A person hears the Bible preached, right? That person's mind is open to the hope that we have in Christ at the cross and the empty tomb. That person's sin is confronted. And, and, and that person's heart is turned towards God in repentance. And then that same person becomes a disciple who begins to preach boldly in the power of the Holy Spirit so that other disciples can be made. You, you can't sit down and read the Scriptures and not find that process all over it. And I think like part of what makes my heart feel heavy is the lack of that process. And the lack of that evidence in people who call themselves Christians today. And I've always loved the phrase that says, You cannot give what you do not have. It's one that I use um, often. You cannot give what you do not have. Like, this is the essence of being a disciple maker. And if you are a disciple, then you are to be a disciple maker. There's, you can't separate the two from each other. To be a disciple is to be one who makes disciples. It's to be one who is being formed as a disciple and shaped as a disciple. And then to also be engaged in the process of forming and shaping other disciples. You cannot give what you do not have. Being a disciple-maker is simply giving to others what has been given to you. It's giving to others what you have received. This is why the Apostle Paul is able to say, Hey, come follow me as I follow Christ. He's able to say that because he's actually following Christ. Like, Like, this is what I long to see in people's lives. That fathers would lead their families spiritually because they are following Christ authentically. That mothers would lead their children and serve their husbands because they are authentically submitted and surrendered to Christ. That single people would authentically engage with one another in a godly, unselfish way because of their encounter with Christ. That teenagers and kids would be engaged in their family and follow their parents because of their relationship with Christ. That's that's, that's my longing and my desire to see in us. Like that, that would radically affect the community of Hastings. Would radically affect your neighborhoods, our neighborhoods. If our neighborhoods, if people in our neighborhoods knew that you don't just show up at a church and get on a microphone and sing a music song and then leave here and, and, and live our lives radically different. That, that, that I don't just step into the pulpit and preach a message and then live a life outside of here that trashes the name of Jesus. But that actually lives this out. That, that, that's, that's, it's not just what I long for you, it's what I long for, for me and for our family. It's been deep longing for, for, for a long time. I know many of you desire and long for the very same thing. When you think about these disciples, right? In the midst of their disciple-making process. Didn't these guys just continue to get it wrong? Didn't they? Isn't that one of of the most encouraging things in this whole story? Is that when Peter denies Christ three times? Publicly, right? I mean, you put that into today. I mean, here's what Peter could have done. Like Peter could have walked into a strip club. It would have been the same thing. Uh, Peter could have sat on the corner and jabbed his vein with a needle. Same thing. Peter could have been at the bar that night getting trashed. Could have been the same thing, right? These are ways that we deny Christ. Peter could have been an absentee father, right? One who's just passively checked out behind the TV, ignoring kids and ignoring wife, right? That, th- these are all ways that Peter would have denied Christ and that we struggle with, right? And the, the list can go on and on and on for us. And what's Jesus' response, man? The, the grace in what I see in Jesus is that he comes back and he preaches this message to them so that they can receive the truth of the gospel so that their lives could be transformed. It's almost as if there was something missing for the disciples yet. I think that's why he tells them, hey, go back to Jerusalem and hang out there until I pour out the gift of the Holy Spirit. So that you'd be filled with this Holy Spirit, so that you'd be filled with power. And this is what happens when people begin to follow Christ authentically. We are in those moments changed by the Holy Spirit, filled with the Holy Spirit, and given power to be His witnesses. The essence of being a disciple maker is being able to give away what you have authentically received. If you've been given the gift of the, of the biblical message, then you want to give that away to others. You've been given the gift of the hope of Christ, the cross, and the empty tomb. You want to give that away to others as well. When you've actually been given the gift of confronting your own sin and listening to the call of repentance so that you can have true life, then you are enabled and you are given a desire to give that same gift away to others when you've been given the gift of the Holy Spirit at salvation, who actually, when you're given the gift of the Holy Spirit, what he does is comes into your heart and witnesses to the truth of the gospel so that your soul can be transformed. When you're given that gift, it's a gift that you want to give away to others as well. You don't want to hide it. You don't want to stick it under a bushel, right? You want to shine that light bright. You want to be like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the Old Testament who stood firm when the entire nation was going a different direction. You want to be like every disciple you read about in Scripture who was killed ruthlessly before the Bible was completed, right? Like These guys didn't follow Christ to sit in a Cush church or... To have all of their wants and needs given to them. They followed Christ so that they could die to themselves, share Christ, and then literally die horrific deaths. Like what motivates a person to live that way? What gives us that kind of urgency? I think, as I said last week, I think it's an authentic encounter with the actual presence of Jesus. Like this is why jesus preached a disciple making message so the question for us is like how does this passage actually help us out practically right i can sit here and explain all of these pieces of what jesus is preaching and the question is how does this how does this actually help us like, my aim today as we came to this passage was to help us wrestle with the things that, 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 that Jesus found to be the most urgent or the most important things that he would speak to his friends about. And if you're a christ follower here if you if you're here and you say yeah i'm a christian i prayed a prayer when i was six or i I walked the aisle at camp or whatever that experience of conversion was for you where the light bulb went off and you believe that jesus died for you and that you are a rebellious sinner and that you need christ to save you and continue changing you whenever that actually happened for you if you call yourself a christian then you are a disciple of Jesus. And you are called to preach a biblical, Christ-centered, sin-confronting, repentance-calling, disciple-making message to other people so that other disciples can be made from every tribe, every tongue, every nation in the power of the Holy Spirit as you give away what you have received the gift that you receive in the scriptures and the gift that you receive from preaching and the gift that you receive from jesus was not given to you and i to squander on our selfish desires the gift that we've been given was not given to us to hide it was given to us to then turn around and give it away for the effect of changing the world. But how does this, how does this message help us to do that practically? i have to fill our head full of great pieces of what's happening in this passage. And the question is, is how, how can I urge you and help you walk out of here and actually live this out, right? Because some of this is kind of a heavy weight because there, I think there's a sense in this that you and I cannot do all this. Can't. I, I think our tendency oftentimes is to be like, I can't believe how that Christian did that. I can't believe how that church does that. And we, we kind of get our eyes like in the wrong place, right? It's a lack of humility, it's called pride. I just begin thinking like everybody else is worse than we actually are. But the truth be told, man, if you guys could see what's happening inside of my heart most days, well, you guys would be really horrified. Right? Like that, that's true of every one of us in this room. Because ultimately the truth is, is that all of the law in the scriptures, all the rules, all of these principles, you and I are, it's impossible for us to do it. The I mean, Truth be told, if, if I was left to myself, if I was left to my own selfish desires, I, I would follow every sinful impulse that awakened within me. That, that's, that's how dark and dirty all of us really are. That's how powerless we really are to fight against those sinful urges. If it wasn't for Christ coming... <laughs> And speaking to you or I, through the words of Scripture, through the words of preachers and friends who are Christians, through the voice of the Holy Spirit deep within us, if it wasn't for Christ, for God and all of His kindness coming to us and saying those things to us, you and I would still be left in our sin. And yet, in his kindness, he came and he spoke, right? Like, you and I have no power whatsoever to do these things apart from God, through the inworking of the Holy Spirit, coming into yours and mine's life and empowering us to walk this out. So, I say all that to simply say that I can give you four little cute go-do action steps, and here's what I know deep down inside, the frustration for me is none of us can do them, and only 20% of us in the room are actually going to try to do them. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like when we walk out of here, we got things to do. Agreed? (laughs) It's Mother's Day, and we need to celebrate that well. There, I told a joke for you, okay? wasn't even a joke. That was just horrible sarcasm. <laughs> as as we walk out of here, and I hope that these four things that I share would just be helpful to you. And I pray that maybe you put them into to action. Number one, study and memorize the Bible with other people. You know whose job it's not <laughs> to make you study your Bible? It's not mine. <laughs> okay? It's not. Like, it's good that you're here. Like need to hear the scriptures preached. Um, but you and I have to kind of feed ourselves at some point. I, like I don't have anybody chasing me down like, hey, are you reading your Bible this week? Like some people will ask that sometimes, but I just gotta say like at some point, we all kind of like children have to grow up and feed ourselves, right? Like if, if my kids who are like 18 years old still need me to feed them, we got problems, right? So, so part of my encouragement is that for us to just feed ourselves, to study and to memorize the Bible with other people, like studying to memorize the Bible is, is vital to our own spiritual health and maturity. Like what you put into your heart and mind directly influences what you desire and what you do. Like if you nourish your heart and your soul and your mind on the junk food of pop psychology and pop culture, and you will be spiritually malnourished. That's all there is to it. Spiritually malnourished. And you will continue to walk in spiritual immaturity. And I don't want that for us. So I I would encourage you to, to throw away the junk food. Throw it away and start studying and memorizing the Bible in the context of small group gospel communities. You know what this could mean for those of you who are parents? Is like sit down with your kids and open the Bible and start reading it to each other. Simple as that, right? Throw the TV away, maybe. Take a couple hobbies off your list. Whatever junk food is getting in the way of actually getting your nose into the scriptures maybe you should start getting some of that off your plate and start filling your plate with the scriptures it's as simple as that the problem for us i think a lot of times is that we want our food to look really nice right so i'd rather go to a, a place that makes my steak look pretty it's not true because i really don't care honestly i love steak but the but the analogy kind of goes like if it doesn't look good to us kind of like well i, I don't know and so i think what we want is when we talk about just growing as disciples and just preaching biblical-centered messages to ourselves i just think we look for much cooler ways of doing it and honest to god truth is we've got the bible in printed form and most countries a lot of countries can't even have that and yet you and i let the bible gather dust and i you know i mean one of the things i would say too is i realize that as a pastor i i have I have, a, I have a gift, I've been given a gift. Like I get, to, I get to study God's word for eight to 10 hours a week, sometimes more depending on the week, right? Like that's a huge gift for me. And, I, and so just in, 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 in saying this in grace that I get to study the Bible that much and yet I know the sin that I struggle with. And, I, and then for, for, for all of you working in jobs that do not require that, I recognize that there is we live in, in different bubbles, so to speak. But that doesn't mean that I should not encourage us to get our noses in the Bibles. I mean, Charles Spurgeon, my favorite preacher of all time, he said that our noses should have ink stains on them from having our faces in the Bible so much. That that's how much we should be in the Scriptures. So maybe, maybe try using a, a daily Bible reading plan or a small devotional book before you go to bed or or, or maybe background images. I think I, I, there were some of you I talked with this week about that, background images on your phone with a Bible passage on it, not just because it looks good and because then people be like, oh, maybe that person's a Christian, but maybe do that so that every time you look at your phone, which is the thing that you and I typically look at the most, right? Every time we look at it, we can actually recite that passage before making a phone call or sending a text message. These are just practical ways that you and I can get the Bible in to us. Three by five cards on your dash, your bathroom mirror. Like my kids sometimes take uh, uh, markers and draw passages and draw notes on the mirror um, in our bathroom. Um, put them on your workbench at work or your computer screen with a short passage to read, or or even listen to the Bible on audio disc or mp3, or start a text message group with some of your friends. Better yet, if you have a family, do this inside your family first. Start a text message group where you send Bible passages every day. Where somebody in that group sends a Bible passage and you learn to memorize it and meditate on it that day. Like Use use one of these methods at least. Uh, I would recommend using them all. Because I think an all-out assault on Satan who wants to steal, kill, and devour our lives I think is really worthwhile. I think it'd be really important for us to take that seriously, right? Um, Lately, I've been listening to um, 17 different books of the Bible almost every day on audio tape. Um, I, I listen to it when I work out. I listen to it first thing in the morning when I get up so that my heart is getting drenched in the scriptures. Uh, I listen when I'm in the shower. I put on one of those little uh, um, Bluetooth speakers, right? Uh, When I'm outside, sitting in the garage, smoking my cigar, uh, I'm listening to this. And there's a place where you can download it for free. Um, It's like I said, it's like 17 books of the New Testament. And which is nearly the entire New Testament. Um, And it's put to a really sweet beat, so it's not just some guy droning on and on and on, right? If you listen to your Bible app read back to you, it can kind of be a little bit um, robotish. But uh, this is called Streetlights, so i just throw that out there for any of you that would be interested. You go to humblebeast.com and uh, click on their downloads, look up Streetlights on there, and then click it, and you'll be able to download all 17 books of those, uh, all 17 of those audio for free. Everybody, go, everybody, go for free. So, yeah, it's free. Um, so you can download all of them. You can stick them in your iTunes. Um, you can have them on your phone. Then wherever you go, you got the Bible with you in a way that, to me, is really easy to read and listen to because uh, it feels a little bit like a. Uh, I don't know, it's, it's, it's artistic, right? Um, it's not just static. And so maybe that would be a way to perk your interest more. Just finding that I'm, I'm finding ways of memorizing the scriptures better that way as well. So maybe try that. Uh, number two, second practical step that I, I would lay out in front of us that I hope is helpful to you guys and helpful to all of us. Number two, man, confess your specific sins with other people. Like, it is way too easy for us to be general in our confession of sin. But that's, that's not how we read the Bible, right? Uh, in the Bible, we hear of specific sin committed by specific people with specific names who then live in a specific time and a specific place. So I think we should follow the same example, right? I mean, we know that Peter, as an author of some of the biblical record, was standing over the shoulder of Mark and was like, hey, you know what, you should put that story in there about how I denied Christ. Who wants to be that specific about their sin? None of us. I think we should follow the example of the disciples in Scripture and practice that with one another. Like I think it should be common in the church for us to hear one another confessing our struggle with sin. Uh, struggle with pornography or substance abuse or angry outbursts or overspending or mismanaging time or bitterness or or any other sins like these right Paul's junk drawer any other sins like these anything you think you can create and think up it's in there we should probably just confess that specifically to one another instead of generalizing oh man I had a really rough day my attitude stunk Oh, really? what does that look like like what's the thing beneath the thing beneath the thing that's the way I like to ask questions Which makes everybody really uncomfortable. I know. There's something life-giving in the process of doing that. So practice confessing your sins specifically with other people. And number three, discuss your specific steps of repentance with other people. Listen, this phrase stuck out to me in my study. When steps of repentance are absent, then confession is useless. Follow me? When steps of repentance are absent, then confession is useless. Like, what's the reason to confess your sin if you're not going to walk away from there and take steps to repent, right? Like, the world actually does a really good job of sharing their crap with each other, but then just never takes steps towards growth. But the proof of godly confession, authentic godly confession, is godly repentance, And so after you begin practicing the discipline of confessing sin specifically to one another, I think what you and I both need to do is to openly discuss our specific steps of repentance with each other as well. This might mean that single folks who struggle with sexual sin and loneliness maybe need to have a, a conversation of accountability with others, discuss the commitment to never being alone with the opposite sex, That might just be that step of repentance for you that you need to discuss with others. Maybe someone who struggles with substance abuse. Maybe needs to discuss a commitment to never entering an alcohol-serving establishment again or staying away from a certain group of friends. Like whatever your road of repentance is, whatever this looks like for you, like it's important for, for you and I to remember that repentance is—it's not a destination. This isn't a place that you and I arrive at where we can go, check. I repented. I'm good now. Jesus, give me my little star on my chart, so I can prove that I'm better than those other Christians over there, right? That's not what repentance is about. It's not a destination. It's a slow, grinding, dirty, gritty journey and it's got to be shared with other people so discuss your specific steps of repentance with other people finally number four this will seem like uh, repetitive and kind of a no-brainer do all these things with other people right Do all these things with other people. Like becoming a biblical, Christ-centered, sin-confronting, repentance-calling, disciple-making disciple is done in the context of relationship. First and foremost, to Christ himself, to Jesus as our Savior. But even that then is not done in isolation as we walk it out. Salvation is both a vertical and a horizontal playing field. We are saved vertically in relationship to our Father in heaven through Christ the cross. And we are saved to be in relationship horizontally with the body of Christ. That is the most basic way of communicating the doctrine of the church that you see all throughout scripture. You would have to cut out the entirety of scriptures to preach a different doctrine in regards to the church community. So this isn't done in isolation, it's done in community and relationship with other Christ followers. So you you can't hide in your own little world. You gotta ask others to join you in that journey so that you have people walking with you. And then once that's established, and the power of the Holy Spirit is evidence in your life through repentance and change, then you start inviting other unbelievers into that journey so that they can have the opportunity to become disciples of Jesus as well. So do all these things with other people. In conclusion, I would say this. My prayer is that we would become a gospel-centered church family, right, of gospel communities. This is our mission statement. I I would love to see us become a gospel-centered church family of gospel communities that grow disciples who glorify God by preaching biblical Christ-centered, sin-confronting, repentance-calling, disciple-making messages to one another so that other people can have the opportunity from every tribe, every tongue, and every nation to become disciples of Jesus under the power of the Holy Spirit. (coughs) Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Lord, I pray that you would drill this message deep into our hearts. Help us to grow as followers of you. Help us to share you with other people around us. Lord, as we close in communion and worship and prayer, God, I pray that your spirit would come and that there would just be a sweet presence of you in this space. And that you would lead us to you. In Jesus' name. Amen. As we close, we'll close with communion. And if you're here and you're a Christ follower, then communion is a meal that that we are to share together as a family. (coughs) If Jesus has saved you, then you're part of that family. If you're here and you've not trusted in Christ yet, then this is not a meal that you should share because it would be a, a dead religious activity for you. And we don't, we don't want to grow dead religious people who just do things because it seems like a good thing to do. This moment could be that moment when you begin following Jesus. Um, we'd love to pray with you about that. If you're here and you're following Christ, you're just struggling in some areas of sin, love to pray with you about that as well. My hope is that these final words of Jesus in this text to his disciples would, I don't know, work on us throughout the week and draw us to the urgency of the gospel. The urgency of the gospel is made clear in the work that Christ did at the cross. And that's what we celebrate by doing this. When we break bread, When we we drink the juice, what we're doing is we're celebrating and remembering what Christ did at the cross on our behalf. This, in a sense, is the way that we rehearse the gospel together every week. So as we rehearse together, if you're part of the family, it might be a good time for you to confess and repent of sin. Trust again, freshly, in the work of Christ at the cross. And again, if you're here and struggling to believe, not yet a believer, <clears throat> this could be that moment where you come to trust in Christ, and we'd like to pray with you about that. So, I'm going to ask you guys to stand. Let's close in worship and communion together. You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska, that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.TheWellHastings.com.